right, we are at the end of the week. It is Friday again with another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of learning technology while cutting through the fluff to get your questions answered. I am really excited about today's. I guess I always get excited, but this one is especially exciting. I probably say that every time, but I'm joined by Peter Wittig. He's from Motive.io, and we're talking immersive tech, specifically virtual reality, but we're gonna bust some myths on this one. And I think this is something that anybody in learning and development is going to be very fascinated to hear about because what often is thought of as this distant futuristic technology is not and uh, we're going to talk about how we can bring this to life but before we get into it we always like to have a little bit of fun as people join in as we get the conversation rolling so let's start and everybody you play along in the comments but let's start with peter and why don't you share with us where are you right now in the world uh in vancouver canada vancouver canada so you are pretty much not yeah, north of me so not I, I don't i guess i'm not my geography is a little bit off, but I know you're north. I do know that much. So it's true. North of Seattle. Um, and uh, yeah, but I, um, I, I come from uh, your neck of the woods where you are. Okay, got it. All right. Well, I'm in Waukesha where, you know, today it is a gloomy kind of rainy day, but it's starting to warm up. So spring is on the way. I'm looking forward to it. Now, let's go to the let's go to the next one. You've had some time to think about this. And everybody, I feel free to share your stories as well. I'm looking forward to what Peter has to share on this one. But which one did you decide on? Because you said you had two. But yeah. What is one of the most embarrassing things that has ever happened to you at work? Well, it, it's related to a job. So I I had just gotten a brand new job and uh, I, I needed um, to fly somewhere to get some paperwork because I needed a visa. Actually, I was working in Ireland okay. and uh, I, I needed a visa. And uh, the company paid to send me over to get it. And um, I missed the flight on the way back and I was pretty short on funds. So I had to call and say, could you get me a new flight? And I hadn't even started the job. So I felt very <laughs> embarrassed about that. Um, but they did it and uh, you know, we got past it. But that was, you know, it's not, it wasn't the, the first impression I was, I was hoping for. <laughs> not necessarily the first thing you do before you start the job. Can you front me some cash? <laughs> I'm kind of stuck. Yeah, but they got it to you, right? They got it to me, and yeah, and uh, you know that was that was very very kind of them. But it, okay. it was it it didn't feel like the most responsible thing at the time. <laughs> hey, it is what it is. It was either that, or it was not like you could have like hitchhiked your way back. <laughs> no, that that was the thing. Yeah. Oh, that is funny. Okay, so mine is early early in my career. I was a territory manager for R.J. Reynolds Camel, uh, and. Not, not my proudest moment, but I was. And so anyway, a big part of my job was I had to go into convenience stores and gas stations and I had to hang up signs. And if you, if you don't know, next time you go into a gas station, look at the positioning of cigarettes and tobacco ads. It's all very strategic. So anyway, I, I'm hanging this sign up and to do this, I had to climb on top of the counter. And so I did, and it's lunchtime. So the, the gas station is packed. And so I'm standing on top of this counter, I hang up the sign and then I go to step down and I miss the stool and my pants from, from my knee, the back of my knee, all the way up to the top of my belt, just, just ripped oh, no. wide open oh, <laughs> in no. front of probably a hundred people. So needless <laughs> to say, I didn't finish hanging the signs or putting up anything. I quickly grabbed my stuff and just embarrassingly scuttled out the door and jumped in the car and drove away. So needless to say, that was one of definitely the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me at work. I, I could see that. <laughs> but it was, it was fine. I recovered, I recovered and I'm still here today. So that's yeah, here you are. Exactly. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so let's transition over to a little bit about your background because you've been in the VR space, but it, you know, was that something that, I mean, how did you end up getting there? Was that something you knew you wanted to get into or how, how was that journey and how did you get here? Sure, we, uh, we started as a game company and uh, we were actually making um, games that were very narrative heavy at the time. And uh, AR was part of that, uh, but we found we had a, an internal workflow issue. So, you know, I, we had developers, I, I was one of the developers and then we have our creative director who comes from a film background. Now he knows what those storylines should be. He knows how those those narratives should play out. Um, but we were using Unity and he didn't have a way to get his content 
into uh, into Unity. And so the problem was is he would give us content, we would code it up, and then he would wait. And then we would hand him you know, what we thought he had said, he would test it out and we would wait. And so there's this terrible thing where both people were waiting. And so we, we developed Wait, this was this tool. all for the games though? This you was said for you the were game. originally, so that, no, all this was completely separate. Yeah, this was all for the game because the, the whole issue was, you know, he, he's got this film background and knows how to tell these stories and these games that would happen out in, in the real world. And we would use AR and they were, they were awesome and they're amazing. And it was just that we needed his creative, uh, we needed a tool so he could get his creative ideas into the games. And uh, as we kept, kept developing that tool, we realized there was value in the tool. And, you know, about 2018, we, we kind of realized, well, hey, this is actually applicable in more than one place. And it, it just so happened that we, we found training um, where there's these group of people who know what the content should be, but can't use a tool like Unity. And so like, wow, that maps exactly to what we were doing in, in the gaming space. And it just so happens that the tool we're using for games, which was Unity, um, happens to be uh, the most popular tool for building VR. So okay. we've got a tool to get content into it without needing to know how to use it. Okay. You know, it's really interesting you bring this piece up because in terms of misconceptions about virtual reality, one of the biggest ones I encounter when I have conversations with people about it, because it's still, I still feel like on a regular basis, there's still this perception about what it is. And one of the biggest ones is, is, oh yeah, well, that's really just for games. It's just for games. And that's really the only use case. And I feel like that's a myth that just needs to be blown out of the water because, well, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it is a good use case for it. It's doing games in VR is super fun and super entertaining. That's not really the only thing. And the point you brought up of this is what we do in learning and development oftentimes is it's like, we're crafting this experience or this narrative around, well, this is what we're trying to get a learner through. We're trying to get them from point A to point B, and this is what we need them to learn and develop along the way. How can we get them to do that? It's a natural pairing for virtual reality. Absolutely. I mean, you can, you know, there's so many, so many directions you could take it, but you know, just on the games point, it, it is absolutely not for games. I mean, we, we talk to people in, you know, across the spectrum and in industry, you know, as, as diverse as, you know, industries that have training departments uh, and learning departments. There, there are that many different types of industries who are interested and who are actually currently using it. So it's, you know, talking about the experiential side of things, um, being able to get in there and do it and then see how well people retain that information and, and how, how much they enjoy it, quite frankly, as well, uh, is, is so fun to see. So it's, you know, it is absolutely for more than games. And I would say training is, is one of the biggest spaces VR is in. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. I, I think, you know, can it be done? Are there certain situations where applying it can feel out of touch? Yeah, you bet. You bet. Just like anything. But I agree that learning and development is a ideal use case because I, I don't think you talk to anybody who, if you say, what, how did you really learn how to do something? They go, I mean, almost universally, the answer is, well, I practiced it or I did it. Right. And it's it's exactly that. That's exactly what we're trying to do. But before we get down this path, because we can go down this path quite a bit and we will. Don't worry about that. I'm curious your your kind of take on this, because another one of the misperceptions that I hear a lot is like VRs. It's it's either new. It's this emerging technology or it's this futuristic thing of the distant future that we'll maybe consider one day. And that's not the case. I mean, you, some of the even just the examples you're talking about, these are these are several years ago, and that's not when it started either. So what's kind of been the history, uh, that evolutionary journey? Well, I mean, there's, you know, it started started decades ago, if you want to go back that that far, um, you know, NASA was using it and, um, you know, other uses as well. But I, I'd say, you know, if we're talking about recent history, I mean, you know, I often talk to people who are telling me things that were true three, four years ago that are, are simply no longer the case. You know, you, you can get a headset for a reasonable price. You don't need a huge computer that's got an amazing graphics card. Um, the things that you can do to say, I have control over the content um, to go in and make changes without needing to write that code. Um, there's so many, so many ways that I could say that, you know, as it started as an emerging tech, you know, the, it's always the domain of the developers at that point. 
Um, the idea that it's some futuristic way off far thing, I, that's just not the case. I mean, it's, it's being used widely um, in, in many industries. And, uh, and I think, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, actually, and, and they said, really, the case is now not so much that we need to find out if it's, if it's worth doing. We feel that it is. The question is, how can we best roll it out on a larger scale? That seems to be the, the, the issue that industry is really looking at at this point. Okay. So I think they've gotten past that point of saying, should we do it? The answer is yes. Um, and then it's just case, well, how can we better do it? So the, the thing I will challenge you on that, well, not challenge you, because I think one of the things is I still see a lot of people questioning whether or not to do it. I'm okay. still seeing a lot of that, at least in the learning industry, where it's starting to gain some traction of people going, well, you know, maybe if we have the right use case or things like that. But this is this is one of the drums I've been beating for a while to say, no, 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 no. This shouldn't be a maybe if it should be a when and how that that really should be the way we're approaching immersive tech, especially. I mean, if 2020 didn't expose the reality that we need to be able to bring experience to people in different ways, I, I don't know what did. I have no idea what's gonna what's gonna open that door for that one. So I think that's where that's why you know episodes like this, the ones I had with James, have been really critical to help people start to see that. Hey, to, to use the point you brought up is spot on, which is people's perceptions of what immersive tech. VR, AR, whatever, you know, slash R we want to use, they're, they're operating sometimes off three-year-old, three-year-old ideas, things that, well, this is how it is. And you're going, no, right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe in 2017, that's how it was, but this space is moving and advancing at a pace that a lot of the things that you thought even six months ago are, are no longer, or have changed dramatically. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, to your point, though, I, you know, there are people out there who are, who are still looking into it and seeing if it's a good idea. Uh, one thing I would say is, is there is just a, a numerous number of case studies available online from huge companies, as well as very reputable research institutions showing how effective it is, how knowledge intention, uh, knowledge retention improves, um, people's, uh, you know, feeling more confident on the job. Uh, reducing accidents. Um, if, if people are interested, we have a white paper on on uh, our website that they can go ahead and download, and it references a number of these case studies. But you know, we were talking earlier, and you made a really good point that you know, it you, you get in what you put into it. Yes. So, I, and I and I think that really is where it kind of comes with people in in the learning spaces. They make if they make good content in one medium. I see no reason if they have the right tools in a new medium, why they won't make good content in, in the new medium. And so, you know, for people who feel confident that they make good content, they should feel confident that with the right tools, they're going to make great content in VR. Yeah. Well, and I think, and, and that I was going to transition over to this piece in terms of one of the hesitations around this, because I mean, I'll pick on marketing a little bit as I did when we were talking earlier that, there has been no shortage of claims out there that VR is the silver bullet. VR is the magic solution. And that if you do anything, simply moving it into VR will just magically make it effective. And the truth of that is, is no, it's not. And we know that from any technology, garbage in, garbage out. If you put a trashy experience into VR, guess what? It's going to be a trashy experience and it's not going to be more effective simply because you wrapped it in a virtual experience. But I would say our industry has worked hard to be do a better job of getting really good at creating meaningful experiences, at designing powerful stories and, and being able to narrate that through. This just allows you to take that to a level that you just cannot do in a traditional, in a traditional medium. And I think that's the part, you know, James and I brought this up is you still have to take the time to be intentional about designing the experience and really thinking about what is it we need people to get out of this? What are the experiences or the challenges we need people to face? Because yeah, if you're just like, let's just throw something in here and, and you know, send out a headset. No, it's, it's not going to be terribly effective. Uh, absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and to that point as, as well, we, we, we try to work on the education of that too. We've, Got a design guidelines document that you can get on our site too for that. Uh, but the you know 
the notion that you, you need to look at the medium as a whole and say, what can I do with this medium? And say, well, now I'm going to say, okay, well, in this medium, you know, I always use TV and radio as an example. You know, there's things that you would do in radio, but if you translated it directly to TV, you're not really using the medium of television. So, you know, if you have someone just sitting in front of, you know, a microphone and reading the news, you could be showing images of the news on TV, or you could be showing video or a live report. Um, and, and again, with VR, it's got certain characteristics that you can use and learning to use those. But at the end of the day, it's, it's people who know what the content needs to be or what those learning outcomes need to be. It's just saying, well, I'm just gonna translate that same knowledge into this new medium. And you can't really do it well without those people. Uh, they're really at the center of that. And, and so making sure that they uh, feel confident, have the, the tools they need, I think is, is critical to, to a larger adoption of the technology. Okay. So I want to get into this, this piece a little bit more. But before I do, in terms of, because this was another interesting point that James and I got into, was when you define where you sit on the experiential or XR spectrum, where does motive sit? Alistair brought it up in the comments. So I'm curious, how do you define kind of the scope of motive? Is it is it full VR? Is it AR? Is it XR? Is it somewhere in between? Um, you know, where do, where do you play your XR? Sorry, not XR, um, extended reality. Where, where do you sit on that? Or do you play in all of them? We've done things in, in all of those. We, we focus on VR training. Okay. Uh, so VR is really the one, and that's where you're putting on a headset You've got a completely uh, created 3D environment. It's not 360 video. Um, it, it's in there. And, and the reason we do that is because we feel that if you've got an environment that looks as much like your real work environment and is as interactable in the ways that you feel it should be and that your real work environment would be, you're going to get the best experience for the training that you put your people through. And that's why we focus on that. Okay, got it. So, so let's, let's go into this, because I think this is one of the barriers that a lot of times, especially in, in our field, people feel when they, when they think of VR is that it's this, it's this something that we just don't have the skills or the capabilities to do. And so if we're ever going to toy in this area, or we're ever going to do that, either we need to dramatically upskill ourselves in being able to learn technologies like Unity and to be able to design in this stuff, or we're going to outsource it and it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be something that's unattainable, especially for maybe an org that has a smaller function or a smaller budget type of thing, which, which contributes to this whole idea of, well, this is just something that we're not able to do. Now that's not the case. And let's talk a little bit about how this is actually augmenting really. And, and we talked about the difference in developers. When I say developers, I'm talking about, our content developers and our instructional designers who are actually designing the experiences and developing the content, this is actually something that they can do with relative ease now, correct? Absolutely. And, and it's, you know, it's very important to point out uh, something we talked about a while back is, is that not all VR vendors are the same, much like not all restaurants are the same. Depending on what you're looking for and what you want to get out of it, you're going to go for one thing or the other. But there are places where this, the, uh, the flow you described is what you're going to get. You're going to say, I do need to outsource that. I do need to do all this. And then there are other places, ours being one of them, where we, we feel that you can't, you know, where people might feel, I can't get involved because of all these new things. Yes. I would actually make the argument, you can't do VR training well without the people in the learning industry. And so building those things and, and having tools available where they can have direct control of that content I think is is critical to success, and uh, you know what I see as trends in the industries is people largely agree with that. Now, I I would, you know, I would caution people, and I would always say maybe caution is the wrong word. I would say people should actively engage and say what is it that I need when I'm going to do VR because there's there are ways you can engage where you're gonna it is going to be very expensive and it's going to take a long time, and that there are other ways to engage where you're saying I'm going to get what I want. And once I have that, I'm going to have full control to do a lot, a lot more without going outside at all. Okay. Well, and this goes back to something that we, I, I talk about a lot on the show, which is you have to start with the outcome or the end in mind and work backwards into that. Because if you're just saying, and, and I've been in conversations where it goes like this, we need VR. And you're going, okay, for what? Well, I don't know, we need VR. Let's go figure out, let's go find some VR and then we'll figure out where that fits. And that's, 
that is not the right way to approach this. That's like buying a hammer and then deciding you're going to go try and find some nails. And that's where you run into these situations where people go, yeah, it didn't work. I, it didn't really work for us. It wasn't really very effective. And, and you ask the follow-up questions of, well, what were you trying to do with it? Well, we, we just bought some. We, we made a simulation that we tried to like make people go through it and they just didn't really like it. Okay, but did, I mean, how were you even designing around that? And I think that's, that's a real opportunity area if you're looking at treading into this. Because to be fair, it's a new space for a lot of people to think about true experience design. And I think that is, that is the differentiator here is we're not just talking about content design. It's not a how do we deliver content to people. It's about how do we create an immersive experience that people will learn as part of that experience. And that's a bit of a mindset shift. Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, there's, well, there's a whole lot to dive into there. I mean, one of the things that people often do is they, they do a pilot and, and, you know, we provide a lot of guidance as to ways to do that. But, you know, having that outcome and saying, well, what is it that we want to achieve? What is it we're looking for? They often say, well, I've got this procedure that I'm doing now and I'm training people in this way. You know, having a pilot that uh, focuses on the same procedure and then comparing those two after the results of the pilot to see, well, are the things that I'm looking to measure, have they improved? And, you know, what are the other things I could do um, that are in that same environment or using those same sets of tools or with those same types of people? Um, and it gives you an easy path to kind of move on to your next procedure after the pilot goes well. And, and, and to that point of, of saying, you know, I often find too that companies don't have metrics on what they're currently doing. So helping them, well, and that's fine, you know, and no. it, but help, helping them get the metrics during yes. the pilot um, so they have a comparison so they can say, look, it is working and it is yes. effective. Well, I, I think I it's think really critical. The, the thing that gets me really excited about this is that for a long time, and, and even I would say even still, a lot of L&D organizations struggle with this. How do we demonstrate the impact and effectiveness of what we do? And that, that oftentimes can feel like a challenge because you go, well, we're pushing out you know, content, we're doing some of this stuff, we're trying to do this you know, retroactive analysis to see does that connect to business outcomes. With experiential learning, we're talking about behaviors. We're talking about skills where we're saying, can a person do this? And we can baseline that. And then again, we can run them through a simulation and actually see, are they improving in the things we know they need to improve in? And that is quantifiable data that having done a, a number of these experiments where you're able to actually say, no, we actually know the workforce is fundamentally better at doing this thing that we know is critical to their job. And we can prove it. We can prove it to you. And that is a position of strength that, I mean, could you do that before? Yes, it's not that you couldn't, but I think what's exciting about VR is it's actually democratizing this to a point where you can actually do this now at scale and across an enterprise. You can do this globally in a way you just couldn't. I mean, it just, you could, but the, the resources and the time and the energy going into it was just not feasible in the past. No, I mean, you, I completely agree with what you're saying there. You know, you being able to show that, you know, you've trained people in a way that has made them more effective, made them safer, made them more confident, um, you know, all of those things, that is the goal. And, and if it's not VR or it's not like doing this or that, the goal is, is improving, you know, the, the ability of the workforce to do their jobs in a safe way. And, and so couldn't agree more there. I mean, what you're saying there with the data uh, is, is exactly right too. You know, the amount of data that you can capture from a headset is, is huge. So one of the things that- And it's that only growing. Going back to your point earlier of like, this is changing at rapid pace, what you can get is changing at a rapid oh, pace. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that, that we do with with ours is we're, we're capturing all of this this data and, you know, we have an authoring tool, it's drag and drop on the web and so you can define your procedures and these are L&D people who do that. And then those get automatically um, ingested into a Unity headset and then play out in a virtual scene. But what the nice thing is, is once that scene's made, they create these procedures and say there's 10 steps. Uh, People will go through and you can see in the data that's coming back. You say, oh, they're getting hung up on step seven, for example. You can do then go to the authoring tool as, as the content person and say, 
I'm going to build out step 7.5, or I'm going to say, I'm going to do a whole breakout session for step seven that people can access directly on the headset and hit save, publish. And then the next time they boot that up, they can go ahead and do it. Then you can see the data again and say, did it improve? And you can know for sure if it did or did not. You know, what you're describing, what's kind of funny about this is what you're describing is similar to if people aren't familiar with digital adoption platforms, that category of space, uh, what they are is they, they sit on top of your technology and then they actually interact with people as they're going through the tech to give them the guidance and the wizards and the tutorials to doing that. It's, it's extremely impactful for system adoption and system training. What you're talking about is giving you that same data and capability in actual behavior-based training, where you're saying, we need somebody to get better at doing a thing. And so we need to show them, you know, how to actually practice this and do this. And then, like you said, you're getting the data to see, here's where they're tripping up. But now it's not a, well, where did they trip up in the content? That doesn't really tell us if they actually got stuck or if they were bored or, or whatever. We don't really know what it is. Here we're actually seeing they were fundamentally not able to do this thing or they weren't doing it well, we need to improve or hone in on that skill so we can actually develop it better. So yeah, it's it, the, the parallels between the two are, are tremendously powerful. And honestly, some of the things that are coming with, you know, haptics and biometric data, I mean, we can actually start to see some pretty powerful stuff in terms of what people are going through. I mean, absolutely. But even today with what you have, you know, you, you can see where people are getting hung up, but you can see what are they looking at? Yeah. What do they keep trying? <laughs> what are they grabbing? What are they doing? Like, and so you, you can see that, you know, and in a way you can say, well, if everyone keeps doing this thing, what if in my physical real environment, I move the thing to there? Would, or I have the option Would that to say- Would that make it better? Right. Or I have the option to say, in the virtual scene, how can I make it clearer that I need to go over to this to the spot where it is really in, in real life? So, I mean, if you have that option in the physical environment, or if you don't, you have that those ways to say, I'm going to make sure they're looking over here when they get to that point or they're picking up this object or whatever, but you have all that data right now. Yeah, well, because, and that's just exactly it. You're starting to see how, he, and this is, goes back to people saying, well, how can we get a seat at the table with business leaders? I mean, this is a prime opportunity to do it because you're going to see how is the workforce actually doing these things. And we can simulate that and see something as an example that you just brought up. If you're seeing that everybody going through this is constantly doing this thing and you need to draw attention to it, that may be a conversation you're able to have with one of the sites on site and say, you know what, what if we actually just move this? Or what if we put something over here to help everybody know they need to do this? Because we're consistently seeing data that shows people are spending time trying to figure that out and we think we can fix it and fix the process versus just training people around it. Exactly. And, and then, you know, making that suggestion, you, you then again have the data to back up why you think it's a good idea and, and able to then compare it when, when it happens in real life to say, well, did it work? Um, you know, and, and that's, I mean, really that's what you want, right? To say, we know why we're making this choice. We think this choice is going to improve something and then we can show that it did improve. So one question I have on this, and I, I, man, I've got a lot of different directions I want to go. So <laughs> me too. we'll see how much time we have. But anyway, okay. a, a, a good question, Toby brought it up, and I do see this sometimes for folks, is that, you know, we think about the smartphone, and I think back to the days before the smartphone was in everybody's pocket. Mm -hmm. And when you started talking about mobile or things like that, it, it was a challenging topic to breach because it became a logistical issue of saying, well, not everybody has one of these. Now, that's not a question you run into anymore because everybody's got an iPhone or an Android sitting in their pocket and that no longer is a challenge. We aren't quite there yet from a hardware standpoint with VR. We don't have headsets broadly distributed or at least some orgs are, are further along. But have you seen, as you've worked with organizations, how do they overcome that challenge? Or what are some ways that this is starting to move or this is becoming less of a barrier of we'd really like to do this, but we don't have the hardware or we can't afford the hardware or what are some of the ways orgs are tackling that? Okay. Well, there's a, there's a lot there. So I'll, I'll jump in and thanks for the okay. question. That's a great one. Uh, first of all, I, I would say that just to go back to what we were talking about before, thinking about data from a few years back right now, today, 
if you said, I'm going to either go out and buy a brand new phone, a brand new laptop, or a brand new VR headset, the VR headset is the cheapest of the three. So that's something to think about. Sure. Another one is to say, when you have the VR headset, your, your employees can do this training on demand. Uh, they can do it on their own schedules in their own time. So you're reducing any schedule conflicts that are going to take people away from the work that they're doing. So you can start to say, well, how many people are being taken away from doing their job? What's the cost of that? Saying everyone can keep doing their job and doing the training when they want. Another one is to say, if they have to travel to go somewhere to train, um, what's the cost of that versus a headset? I mean, a headset is, is far less. But the way that I find that companies are, are proving it out is to say, I'm doing this in a small controlled setting, so a pilot of some sort. They start to see the benefits of it. They start to then look at what it really costs to do the training in a different way and say, well, because of these scheduling conflicts or because you know I had to bring someone in externally and then people forgot before they had to do the job and I had to bring them back, or I had you know that that lag that can happen between training or sending them you know there's there's just yeah. all sorts of these other additional costs that I think people have just accepted as that's just the way it is when when now you can say <laughs> it doesn't have to be exactly right it does not have to be it, it that is so, it's it's such an important point because there are so many of these things we we have just accepted that you know when I use the word reimagining that's really what I'm trying to push with people of saying you need to throw out everything that you have taken as an assumption well we have to do this first or this is just the way it works N not necessarily at all in, in fact a lot of these things and going back to your quantification of some of that expense it's huge you think about the cost of just flying someone somewhere you've you've covered the expense of a headset i mean right there out, out of the gate i think one of the other ones and i'm curious your take on this is that a lot of times I see this idea that, well, we need to start with AR and then we need to move to VR. And I've actually been kind of pushing against that saying, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think there's really a natural progression of, well, you start with AR and then you move to VR. In fact, I think you could almost argue the opposite in some regards, because with VR, you can truly kind of isolate and insulate what you're trying to do. Augmented reality can have some of its own challenges, especially if you're trying to go into wearables and you're trying to do some of the heavier, okay, we want to use hollow lenses and we want to layer on top of this and do object recognition. You start getting into some pretty complex things where I think VR, you can actually do some pretty powerful stuff very easily. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I guess I would take those on, on a, a certain basis. I, I would love to know the general rationale for why someone would go from AR to VR and why they see that as a natural progression. I, I, I certainly don't. I don't um, either, but yeah. I, I hear it a lot. Well, we really should start with AR and then move to VR. And I would yeah. say, no, no, don't, no, don't box yourself into that idea that this is a workflow. Yeah, and I, and I think there's also a bit of a fallacy with um, AR where the people feel because everyone has a phone, it's ubiquitous, but not everyone's phone is identical. Uh, and, you know, I might have a phone from five years ago and someone might have a brand new phone that's top of the line. The, the technology that's on those phones is very different. The experience yes. that one learner would get to another is, is very different. The, the best, and, and whether you, you want to call this mixed reality or not, but the, the best training uh, exercise I've seen uh, use HoloLens and HoloLens 2. Um, those are pretty amazing, but again, it, it really depends on what you're doing. Um, the remote assist stuff with AR is cool where you need somebody to call in and see what you're doing. Um, but again, with the VR training, you know, having that simulated scene and being able to go and do it whenever you want, and then, you know, having someone seeing if you're doing it right and, and potentially adjusting the scenarios or randomizing those scenarios so you can get more, I, I just don't see, yeah. that's good to know that, that that's occurring. I, I don't come across that. So I, I'd be I, interested to know more to be I've honest. had to shut it down in, in multiple conversations where I've heard kind of, this is our stepping stone into immersive tech. We're gonna start with AR and then we might explore. And, you know, EdTech Medic brought it up that they're, they're two very different experiences and the use cases are different. You, you really cannot approach them with a, well, one is just kind of naturally building on top of the other, not not necessarily at all. And I, I would say, throw that one out, out the window if, if that's where your head's at. So one of the other questions that came up, and I, I've got a take on this one, but I'll be interested in yours as well, is 
for organizations who may be looking, Tom brought this up in terms of, you know, organizations who may be saying, hey, we have a lot of, of web-based content right now, and we'd like to make this more experiential or more immersive to do that. You know, how, how are organizations making that shift and, and what is the right way to do that? Because I've got a perspective, but I'm curious, you're working with a lot of clients who are doing this. How are they making that shift? You know, one of the ways that, that we do it is, is to make those things um, more experiential, as you say. You can certainly have a quiz where you choose from a few options. But I think a better way to do it is to say, if I'm trying to choose between which tool I need to use, pick up the right tool um, in VR. Um, if, if you're trying to assess someone on something, um, have them do the thing in VR and then, and then watch that with the data. And then you're going to know if they passed or not. Um, and, and then that's true of scoring. It's true of, you know, you know, complete, incomplete, uh, pass, fail. Uh, it, it's about as much as you can say, take the web content and say, what is a question here? And that could be a quiz and say, how can I have someone do that action in VR and then know what they've done as, as the result of the quiz? Um, because, you know, writing on a, even taking it on a piece of paper or a website and saying, you know, which of these you know, multiple choice options is the one I should do. But when you're actually in the real world saying, well, now I have to do it, what am I supposed yeah. to do? One, if you do that in VR before, studies are showing that people who, who do it in, in, a, in a simulated environment like VR have a much higher um, success rate than people who did it on, on, a, on a flat format, I suppose, of a yep. multiple choice. Well, it goes back to you're actually asking them to do something versus, exactly. trying, you know, retain knowledge and go, oh, can I remember what I'm supposed to do? And going back to what you said with this, this is a shift for people in learning and development in the way we design. It really mm -hmm. is. And so, you know, to the question, Tom, of, you know, how do you make that shift? What you don't want to do is just move it from one box to the other. You don't just want to take your, your e-learning content and say, well, how do we just shift and, and move that into VR, but more so say, okay, you're probably going to have to unpack some of this stuff and say, okay, what were we trying to get people to do as a result of this? And sometimes <laughs> I've done this multiple times. You get to the end and you go, honestly, we can't answer that question. In which case you may say it might not make sense for VR, but you might also come to the conclusion of why are we giving this to people in the first place? Because if we can't answer the question, what do we need them to do in the first place? Maybe we don't really need them to, we, we don't need them to experience it anyway because it wasn't that relevant. And I've seen this actually be a really powerful way to clean house with some of your garbage content, not saying our content's garbage, but I think anybody in L&D, if they're honest, would admit there's a fair amount of garbage content that, that accumulates over time. And, and there's opportunity to go through it and say, hey, let's make this a little more experiential to your point. What do we need people to do as a result of this? And now let's build that. And it may actually be supplemental. You may still need the content to say, we need to educate you. And then the application portion is where we're going to see, do you actually know how to put this into practice? Oh, I mean, that is a absolutely critical point. Uh, almost every client we work with, VR is, is part of a blended solution. So it, it's not replacing everything. It's, it's a, a, again, it's another tool you can use to help train people. But, but again, just to be clear on, on Tom's point, like thinking about how we do it, it is totally possible to be in a 3D VR environment and have a multiple choice quiz come up. Yep. But we also have ways for you to say, I'm gonna actually do that thing and, and have the ways to do it. But the critical part of that is a guy like Tom knows what that question should be. Yes. And, and you can't make good content without people who know what the content should be. And so that's why I just feel that getting more people from um, the L&D side and the content side into this medium is, is just critical for success. So, you know, the hesitancy that I, I sometimes encounter, I think is not justified because it, they, are, they are critical to, to making this medium succeed. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's where we, we are uniquely positioned as a function to bring this to our organizations and say, hey, this, this, is a, this is a powerful tool for our workforce. This is a powerful way for us to, I mean, we're all dealing with the upskilling challenge right now and the work is changing 
at, at a pace at which it's almost impossible to keep up. And mm. so if we're waiting on legacy approaches to this, we're going to continually be behind, but this allows us to actually say, Hey, we can get in front of this because going back to your workflow piece, if, if this is something where you're saying, well, that, that process, that workflow has changed, we can change it with the push of a button. We can change it without having to go through everything that we would have to, if we were going through legacy methods. Absolutely. So talk to me, let's, let's walk through kind of the workflow of this for how an organization may say, Hey, we've got, we've got something that we want to try this out on. What does that look like from a, you know, if you're working with someone and they say, we want to, we want to do this, we want to build out an actual, I call it SIM, you know, we want to build a SIM that we want to put people through. What kind of things do they actually need to work through and, and how do they get started? Uh, well, you know, the, one of the ways that we'll do is 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 say, okay, well, we're going to help you identify the procedure that we think is going to be most effective for helping you demonstrate how effective this technology is. You know, we have criteria for that to say um, procedures that are used by a lot of people happen often, could be dangerous to do um, in real life, uh, might be too expensive to do in real life. Um, something that's uh, relevant to across departments. So picking a procedure is one way. Then you think about the environment in which this thing is going to happen. And we are strong advocates of having uh, a simulation that looks and, and behaves like your real life work environment. So if that's on a factory floor, if that's in an office, if it's, you know, outside, um, you know, working on a construction site, making it look and behave in the way that you would expect it to for the training of the procedure that you've chosen. Then you think about the things in the scene that you're going to use. So what kind of objects are there? There could be, you know, tools. It could be people you talk to. It might be a vehicle. There's all these things. What are those objects? And then what are the ways that you interact with those objects? So how, what are the types of interactions you do? And then if you think about that, it, more than likely, and in most cases that we run into, there's not just one procedure you can do in there. So once you've got that scene built, and you've got those objects and you've got those interactions in there. Then we have our nice web-based tool, L&D takes over and says, okay, I'm gonna start authoring one procedure. You run through the tests, you, you get data on the old process, compare that or the current process, excuse me. And then you compare that with what's happening in the pilot. But now that you've got that scene and you've got this authoring tool, you can then say, great, now I'm gonna put another procedure in there. You don't have to talk to a dev, you just go right ahead and do it, you get all that data, you can create your reports, you can start improving things and see the effectiveness of, of, um, of the technology and, and the, you're getting the results of the learning outcomes that you want. Okay, okay. Well, and so with this, one of the things you're bringing up, and I think this is, this is an important point to, to make with people is to get this right, this is where it's, there's, there's a couple things you brought up that I think are worth pulling the thread on. First okay. of all, one, you really need to actually know where the worker workforce is and what they're doing. This this can't be an assumption from a crystal palace of, I think this is what's like, we really need to either talk to these people or be there and see and actually know, okay, this is actually what's going on so that we can get that simulation to a point where it's immersive and believable. It feels to a degree of relevance. I, I am curious a question on this though, because how far do you go with that? Because I can see analysis paralysis, or I mean, just, I see the history of some of the things we've done before where <laughs> you can get so wrapped up in trying to get it perfect, you make no progress because you've got too many people, cooks in the kitchen thing. Have, have you found any kind of best practices for helping get it to a point where you go, it's just good enough, which is where we need it to be without over-indexing and trying to get it perfect? Yes, and, and we have a, a best practices uh, document on our website uh, okay. and somewhere to go have a look. Uh, but, the, you know, one thing I would say is, is, is you just need to say what you're trying to do is demonstrate that this is more effective than something you're doing. And so you look at, you know, what's the cost of something you're doing? You know, is it new employee training? Does that take a couple of weeks? Does it take a couple of days? Does is it something where I have high turnover? And then can I reduce that time? Um, another one would be, say, you know, people get trained by someone externally and say, okay, well, this is a task that's important, but I can only get a trainer in here twice a year. Um, so can I replace that with on-demand training? And then people aren't forgetting, they're able to do the task faster. You might say, um, you know, again, uh, what is something related to safety? Say, you know, I've got this number of accidents, 
or this number of missteps, how can I reduce that? Or if saying product is getting damaged. So you say, well, they're damaging a, a piece of product that's quite expensive during the training, <laughs> or, or I need to use you know, space on the floor to do the training. Um, I don't have to now because I've got it all virtual. Nothing's going to get damaged in virtual reality. Okay. And, and you're, you've got your factory floor back. So depending on your industry, I would again, I would have a look at, at the website, but breaking each one down to say, what is a very th easy thing that we can quantify versus what we're doing now that's going to have a, uh, I would say, like a, an, an immediate and measurable impact. Okay. Okay. That's well, and I think that's, that's exactly where I, I sometimes tell people, sometimes you need to go slow to go fast. And, and sometimes we can skip that step. We just jump and we're like, okay, let's just grab something and do it so that we can say we did it in VR versus saying, let's find that right viable use case that we can, to your point, we can measure, we know that there's an issue that's happening right now. And I think the other one that you brought up that's a really important point to think about is, what are some of those situations, what are some of those situations where we may be able to kill multiple birds with one stone where we may say, hey, maybe we start with tackling this thing, but if we actually design this sim, we may be able to do some different things without having to redesign the whole situation again and just make some minor tweaks while at the same time putting people through that. So you're designing once, but applying multiple times, I think is an important piece to think about. And this goes back to true experience design, actually yeah. thinking about experience versus just what do we need to tell people? No, what do we need people to do? Where are they? What's happening? What are all those different variables? Yeah, and I mean, you know, one thing that I, I see come up a lot is, you know, this practice of iteration and you need the right tools to be able to go through those iterations and say, well, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And you need to be able to do those quickly and you need to be able to measure um, what the impact is of each of those iterations and the changes that you make. Um, that is that it's critical. I mean, you, you absolutely have to be able to do that. And it is not a scalable solution. It's not a viable solution, in my opinion, if you don't have tools that allow you to iterate quickly with the people who know how to do the training. It's, you know, doing it once and saying, well, where is everyone getting stuck? Doing it again, saying, is this actually the way it's supposed to be? You know, getting that that buy-in from uh, the people going through the training, the people, the SMEs, the people who are making the training, the, the people who want to know how effective it is, iteration is, is critical to that. Okay. okay. Well, and that goes back to the whole avoid, avoid perfection at the cost of progress, where you know, you're going to iterate, you're probably not going to get it 100% out of the gate. And you shouldn't because it's going to change and you need to be able to adapt. And I'm not going to use fun corporate buzzwords like be agile and all that good stuff. But I mean, those are some of the things that we need to be thinking about in terms of how do we design this in a way that we can iterate and move on as we learn. And, and it does bring forth some of the things we learn from software development that you're, you're not going to get the whole thing right on on round one. You know, I, I, that's true. It is a software development thing, but I, well, even before that, it, it's just something you learn when you're a kid, right? You know, you say, say, say you're going out there and you're swinging a baseball bat, you know, you try oh, it. Hit it and, out of the park then, on the first try. No, and then you try it again and you try it. So, I mean, it's, it's just, not, and you got, as long as you got somebody throwing you the ball, um, you can going to keep swinging. And, uh, and so iteration, I think is a normal, I'd say it's a very human thing. Yeah. And, and it's saying taking this human thing and, and putting it into a digital medium of some sort, um, to me, is the most natural thing there is. Yeah. Well, and on top of it, to the point of this is because that is naturally how we learn is through practice and repetition. Historically, that has been very hard because how do you recreate the same experience over and over and over again to help people be able to grow and develop in that? And that's where VR does allow you to do this because you can say we can simulate something and allow people to do it as many times as they need, however they need to get to the point where they have that confidence. And I think that goes back to demystifying this whole, well, why are we seeing increases in confidence levels with employees? Well, it's because they get to actually do it without the risk of, if I do this wrong, I'm in big trouble or I blow something up. No, you can practice it, keep doing it until you get to a point where you're comfortable so that then when you actually go do it, it's, it's not nearly as scary as it was, you know, if we said, hey, you went through training once, we told you how to do it. Now go work on the real thing. That, that's, a, that's a pretty big crevasse to ask people to jump. Yeah, and, and actually just 
directly to that point um, with one of our clients, you know, one of the ways they train is they take several uh, highly skilled professionals away from their jobs to help train someone. It takes two hours to set up the room. Um, and and you're, you're taking away all those people's times from going and doing their job to train the trainee. Um, with VR added in as part of that blended solution, they're able to take that training whenever they want on demand in their own time. Then when they get the time with those skilled professionals in that room, when it's set up, they know exactly what they need to do. They get more out of the training. Those skilled people are there less often and you have to set up that room less number of time or a fewer number of times. And so that's exactly right. They show up confident and they get more out of it because they're getting those finer points when they've got that actual time with with the actual skilled professionals and that's that's something that's you know happened with one of the clients that we work with well and i think the consistency this is something that can't be can't be understated because i know that you know a lot of the ways we've tried to tackle this in the past is we we will we will try and design sims i've i've been part of teams where we've tried to design sims but one of the challenges you always face is the variability in the simulation. I mean, it is always a challenge when you're trying to do this through legacy methods, because depending on who the person you're using to kind of run the sim, depending on the environment you're in, depending on different things, you add a lot of variability into the mix, which actually makes it hard to measure objectively how people did, because depending on the assessor, depending on the simulation you're running, I may go through it once, you may go through it, and you may get a completely different outcome, even though we both did the same thing. And I think that's where this does allow us to create that consistency to say, it's always the same. It's not biased. There's no you know, variability in that. We're asking people to do the same thing and be able to measure how well are they able to do that, and are we developing them along the way? Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. I, I, there's that. That is a a critical point. Um, again, that's uh, in the white paper we have on the site. Is, that's consistency is one of those things that gets called out. But you know, how can you measure if, if you're doing something different each time? And and you just can't. And if you can't measure, you don't know if it's effective. And so that consistency is is kind of a, a groundwork for for so many of those other points that that you want to be able to prove. So yes. couldn't agree more. Well, and then the data behind it. I, I think that's the other piece, and, and we we will not have time to, <laughs> to get into the the kind of ethical and just kind of side of the data management and how we do that well. But the reality is is that we're actually capturing data on this. So instead of my perception, I think Peter did a good job of this, or my perception on how he did. No, it's it's not it's not biased by the assessor. It's truly just what happened how long did it take did they how many times did they do the wrong thing before they figured out the right thing there's no it's it's neutral neutral in that sense and i think that's an important piece to be able to help us understand how people are doing and and grow them along the way i mean i i i really like that myself and i mean i i would think if you know as learners would like that too because they know how they're being measured they know exactly what it is that they're trying to do i mean it's an old example but it reminds me of i remember being in i think it was in middle school at the time and uh i i wrote a paper you know for a class and i turned it in and one to one teacher and i got an a and i i turned in the same pe uh, paper to another teacher and i got a c and and then i said you know that doesn't happen in math <laughs> <laughs> but it's true I mean, it's, it's, it's very true. And we can all relate to that experience where you go, I thought I nailed it. And then I did the exact same thing. And I was told I failed and I don't understand why. And that's frustrating as a learner. That is extremely frustrating as a learner and the opportunity to remove that out and be able to just say, you can learn through iteration, but you're actually going to know where to improve and how to improve so that you can do better and have that objective measurement so you can develop. I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. So one, one other thing that I'm, I, I have so many other things I wanna talk about, but one of these other things as organizations, um, you know, continue to tread into this space. And I think that's why I say where they are now is they're, they're kind of dipping their toe in the pool. And I think it's time to just push them in the deep end. But as we, as we start looking at this stuff, you know, there is the reality of, one thing that I don't think can be understated, and I'm curious your take on this is, 
we often take for granted the digital acumen of our end users. You know, it's, it's easy to do that, to say, well, I'm comfortable with this, I know how to do this, so I'm sure everyone else can be. And I've been part of this where you roll something out and the end users struggle with it a little bit. So I'm just thinking headsets. This can be new territory for some people and you can't underestimate that if this is the first time somebody's dealt with this, you can't just send them something and go, go in and do the sim because they're not gonna know what to do in that sense. How have you seen organizations or how do you recommend organizations kind of overcome that barrier? We talked a little bit about getting the hardware there, justifying it there, but then how do you actually, from a change management standpoint, help, help them actually adopt this new tech? Well, you know, it depends on, on what time you're talking in, you know, pandemic or not, right? But, you know, a lot of what we saw was quite effective is uh, people would come in in small groups. They would do uh, the experience in the headsets. There'd be someone in there who would, okay. you know, help them put on the headset, say, this is what you need to do. Um, if you're in that kind of environment as well, you can cast the uh, experience that the VR user is seeing. So you can have people who are waiting, see what's going on. Um, before they get into it, uh, if, if it's a teaching experience about um, VR and, and training for that. Um, but then also, you know, I think with any technology, it's just you got to be a bit hands on at the beginning and say, here's the new tech. I'm here to help you. I know that you're going to get it. Um, and then usually with new tech, in my experience, and this has been true for decades, you know, you take that time up front to say, I'm going to be here, you know, help you, support you, make sure you can do these things. And then that reaches a point where they, they just say, okay, that's enough. I got this. Thanks. And, and I'm good. yeah, and, and that's what you want. And, you know, they'll come back with questions here and there, but I, I don't see it any different than the new tech that, as you mentioned, has been rolled out time and again. And the, the new tech is here um, that was new 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and everyone just feels fine with it. So, you know, there's learning um, and you just got to be hands-on and help. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where, some of these some of these barriers that organizations still face i think naturally over time are going to they're, they're going to be reduced as people grow more comfortable with these types of things but i think one of the things you brought up which you know jenna mentioned this and, and we've been talking about this throughout is just the fact that it's about this supporting people through the iteration so don't don't just drop ship them a headset and say good luck go in and do it that's not going to work very well. And it is going to reject it. It's going to be that change step approach where people just go, that's too big of a step. It didn't work. It was too complicated. So you do need to plan for that and, and be able to build that in. And I think one of the other things that uh, EdTech Medic and, and Jenna brought up is the ability to say, hey, from an accessibility standpoint, whenever possible, design for a web option or a mobile option as well, so that instead of saying this only works, in immersive tech, it can be done. And I know last, when I was talking with James, people get fired up and they're like, well, that's technically not VR. And yes, I would agree that it's probably technically not VR in that sense. However, it can be a step change to say, hey, this is the ideal case, but we're gonna step you along the way so that you can, you can move up that continuum. Sure, and, and we have a WebGL option for that as well. And, uh, you know, I, it is important. And, you know, with, with anything that's new, there's a, there's a period of transition. Yeah. And, and I think as, as supportive, supportive as you can be in those uh, periods of transition, um, the, the, the better your success rate will be. Yep. One other point on that, though, just to what you said, and I, I know we're getting close on time, <laughs> is, is just to say that when we find that when people, uh, content developers, people in L&D use tools to make VR training, they're very proud of it. And they're yeah. very happy to engage with the trainees who in turn are thrilled to be using VR. Yeah. So it's it's a fun kind of win-win where you get these people who, are, who say, I want you to see what I made. Right. And these other people will say, I can't wait to see what you made. Yeah. And and so to me, that that creates a supportive environment right away. Uh, and so we, we see that happening with VR. Yeah. It definitely fosters this culture of enthusiasm and, hey, we're excited to do this. So I, yeah. I, I'm really glad you made that point because it should encourage people who may feel like it just feels like it's too much. Like it's not. And people actually get really excited about this kind of stuff. So 
I warned you this was going to happen. So we are we are at time. Uh, this has been a great conversation. For those of you who have who are curious, check out Motive.io. I think again the democratization of this capability is coming fast. So if it feels like it's out of reach, out of touch, it's not. Uh, and I think anybody in our industry should be exploring and pushing the needle on this because I think there's tremendous opportunity for us to reimagine the possibilities. So thank you, Peter, for joining me. Thanks everybody for tuning in. This has been a great conversation. I wish you all the best rest of your Friday and a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Christopher.